All right, we're going to turn to this uh, well-known passage from Philippians uh, chapter 4, and we're going to look at uh, 4, 5, 6, and 7. Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Three directives here. You see the first is... uh, and it focuses, it homes in on our affections, the religious affections, on our emotions. The emotion of rejoicing, of joy, of gladness. And he tells us we are to have this, uh, we are to have this affection. And he underlines it, doesn't it? Because he repeats it again, he says. I, I, I say to you uh, that the, the Christian church and the individual Christian and the Christian family is to be characterized then by joy. After love and the fruits of the Spirit, joy. Joy in who the Lord is. Joy in having the truth. Joy in what the Lord has done. Joy in the forgiveness of sins. Joy in the hope of heaven that we have. The hope we have, we're going to meet and see all those that have gone before us in in Christ. And that we are always on wet, cold days, not just beautiful days like today. We are always to be characterized as real Christians by rejoicing in the Lord. That is the primary tone of the Christian life. That's the keynote of discipleship. That in our hearts there is melody to the Lord. The psalmist says, every day will I bless thee and will praise thy name forever and ever. It is the fruits of the indwelling of the Spirit of God. And we're always to manifest that. There's no excuse for us not even in the most troubled times of neglecting our duty to rejoice in him. And then secondly, he says, uh, let your gentleness be evident to all. Have this reputation that people in Uh, Your class in school, people in your tutorial group, your neighbors, the members of your family, um, your gentleness is evident. The the word is really about self-discipline and about uh, self-denial. It's um, to characterize our lives in a a non-extremist way in a non-extrovert way, in excess of all kinds. No. Your graciousness, your long-suffering, it's uh, a disciplined reaction of uh, a person under provocation that he shows kindness and goodwill. He turns the other cheek. He goes the second mile. He overcomes evil with good, under provocation. He doesn't retaliate um, when people harass and say the meanest things about Christians. And we, we look to God for him to help us. So that's the second characteristic of a Christian. 
The first is that he rejoices. There's a joy about the Christian. And then there's a graciousness that all men are to see. And then he comes to the main thing in verse 4. Don't be anxious about anything, he says. Now, he's not saying here, um, you know, the authorized version talks about uh, being careful about nothing. And it means being full of care. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that we don't take reasonable steps according to the foresight and the the knowledge and the wisdom that God has given to us to take, uh, well, to plan ahead and to prepare and to work and to save and take precautions. It's not wrong to be fearful. We we follow a saviour who uh, in the darkness before the cross sweat drops of blood and long for another cup. So those things are not wrong in themselves. But what the apostle is speaking about here is really neurotic anxiety. Uh, An obsessional preoccupation with some of the details of our lives. A preoccupation that paralyzes us so that we're useless then to do the things that we have to do in the church and in our families and before the, the world. A preoccupation that is quite irrational. An obsession that bears no relationship to the problem that is, is facing us or our ability to control the various factors that we are facing or even the reality of the problem. We distort it when we are like that. So it isn't just a warning about uh, uh, thoughtfulness and preparation. It is uh, this neurotic, obsessive, paralyzing, irrational anxiety. And this is what Paul is concerned about. It's like the psalmist in um, Psalm 107, who he's like a man on top of a mast in a storm, and he is being tossed about. One moment in the depths, another he's in the heights and he's just useless to do anything else. All he can do is cling on for life. The apostle is talking about the tendency that is so common in Aberystwyth of losing sleep over things that don't deserve it. Over things we can't control and over things about which God has said he'll take care of them. It is this concept then that I'm opening up to you tonight of obsessive anxiety, of a distractive, distracted mind, a mind that's torn between um, our Christian faith and what we say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want all things work together for my good. And the reality where the rubber hits the road of worry and concern. So we have this um, distracting care about virtual trivialities. That is the feeling that Paul is concerned with here is really emotional derangement in our personalities. And it's very common. It's very common all around us. It's common amongst teenagers. 
it's common among students and it's common amongst middle-aged and older people all around us. It's the very hallmark of our age. And so we have a, a virtual crisis in neuroses because of our generation's obsession with things that are temporal, with things that are seen. There's a collapse of the old institutions and the old structures and standards and the traditional comforts then that you could turn to and you could hold on to and they are gone. So Paul is saying, no, for the Christian, let him be distinguished from the world around him by the fact that this neurotic anxiety, he's a stranger to it. Then we can cast the net a little bit wider and we can look at this feeling, um, not just in terms of the feeling itself, we can do that and we can say that it is irrational and obsessional and so on. But we can look at it in this way. It is an obsession with a certain class of problems, a certain category of human experiences that the Word of God tells us we should should not at all be the object of anxiety for any Christian. Okay, he's writing to the whole of the Philippian congregation now. He's addressing them all. No one can be exempt, not an elder, not the newest Christian in the congregation. We have this feeling, this compulsive anxiety. And what has caused it? What's generated it? in our own hearts. Well, firstly, then, uh, there are anxieties which are directed to things that are really inconsequential and trivial and unimportant. If you go to the Sermon on the Mount, you see there our Lord in Matthew 6, he, he addresses half that chapter to this matter of anxiety. Take no thought, he says. That is, don't be full of worry and thinking about what you, what, where your food's coming from and your drink is coming from. Or if you'll have enough uh, money to get clothes to put on your back or shoes on your feet. And then he goes on and he says, take no thought for your life. Now, part of the problem of neurotic anxiety is that it is concerned with trivia. Your conflicts tomorrow morning, your boiled egg at tea time and soldiers, the cups of tea, the clothing that you are going to wear for sporting occasions or, or for doing the garden. Now, it might seem perfectly reasonable for the non-Christian to be obsessed. For the teenage boy who doesn't spare a thought for God to say, can't wear that colored t-shirt, it's last year's color, can't have those, uh, those shoes. Uh, they're, they're no longer, Adidas is out, and uh, can't wear those any longer, and so on. And he's obsessed with his image before his friends in school. The Christian can't think 
like that. Uh, these preoccupations. And so this evening, I'm, I'm not saying to uh, unbelievers that might be here, or humanists or atheists in, in Abaris with, uh, don't be anxious. I'm, I'm not addressing you. I, I'm addressing now the people who know God, the people who have access to an indwelling Savior, the people who have exceeding great and precious promises from God. God is their Father, God is their Shepherd, God the lover of their souls. I'm saying to you that it is absolutely impossible for you to maintain these things and testify to that reality and also to be overwhelmed with worry. It's a denial of a believer's perspective, of a believer's priorities. For the Christian, our concern is God's reign of grace, his kingdom, that he protects us with walls of salvation, that he cares for us, that he is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or even think, that his priority is to love us with a love that will not let us go. And this is where the whole problem of destruction is so important. When we look at the matter of anxiety, the Greek word means a divided mind. Don't have a divided mind. What happens to a, a Christian, a little believer, when his or her mind is divided? What happens to them? Well, they get preoccupied by this life. The problems of maintaining and supporting this life. They become dominant. They grow and grow and they become immense. And our faith and our God shrinks and gets smaller and smaller. We're no longer concerned for his glory. We're no longer hungering and thirsting for his righteousness. Our minds are not set on things above Our Lord says, seek first, have as a priority in your life God's reign, God's kingdom over you. And if anxiety is rising up and uh, and focusing our attention on this world, then our mind is a distracted mind. Christ and mammon are choices set before you. You cannot have them both. You either serve the world and mammon or you serve the Son of God. And they're pulling different ways. And Paul says, now Christians, don't be distracted. Don't be distracted from this great priority of serving and loving the kingdom of God. Don't let the other problems of life, the bionic and biological life, don't be distracted from it. Because the kingdom of God is foundational. The fact that God is with us. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The love of God. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Are with us moment by moment. Through our lives. Don't be distracted. Don't be torn from that absolute reality. By trivia. The Christian needs to give his undivided attention. His absolute priority. 
to serve in God, to the glory of God, to the advance of his kingdom and to the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last day when we see Jesus and are like him. And that person then shuts out the whole problem of neurotic anxiety. He is determined not to have the problem of a divided mind, of an unintegrated personality, because at last uh, the whole problem of a believer's anxiety is that his personality is, is torn one way or the other. His life isn't unified. His mind is not concentrated. There is division. There is distress in his mind between the kingdom of God and 21st century life. And Paul says that is the first problem with anxiety. We allow our lives to be distracted from the attention we should give to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his kingdom and to its spread and to our serving him and pleasing him in everything we do. And then secondly, anxiety does something else. Not only does it take us up and we become preoccupied with trivia. But we become preoccupied with things we can't influence or control in any way. Our Lord says, which of you, by taking thought, can add a cubit to his stature? He imagines a person who is just very concerned about his Lack of stature. He's a little man. And he worries about it. It's become a a crushing obsession to him. Um, He feels that he hasn't had promotion. That his gifts haven't been recognized in in life. because, Because he's a short man. And he worries and worries about it. And all that energy and worry can't add a single millimeter to his stature. Here's another man and he's concerned that he's not going to live long enough to to get his pension. He's fretting about the possible shortage of life that he's going to know and he's distracted. There was a woman once in this congregation and she didn't come often but I often visited her and uh, she was desperately worried whenever there was a thunderstorm, that her house in Prospect Street would be struck by lightning. And I was with her on one occasion, and there was a peal of thunder, and she was visibly, dreadfully alarmed because of it. She couldn't do anything about it, could she? In the million to one chance that lightning would strike, her house in her inner kitchen, her care, her worry, her obsession can't add any period of time to her life. That is the precise hallmark of neurotic anxiety. We can become obsessed with things over which we have no control, over which we have no possibility of controlling them at all. Um, You think of uh, an expectant mother. And that mother has uh, all kinds of fears about the unborn child in her womb. She's 
obsessed by it. She feeds her obsession. She goes to the um, web and she feeds in a pregnancy and she reads and she worries about the development of the unborn child. But everyone tells her, the nurse, when she sees her, the second opinion she demands, they all assure her, that everything they can discover about that child is that it's a perfectly normal little child. There's absolutely nothing that she can do. Christ is saying to us, what's the point of obsessive preoccupation with things over which you have no control? How much energy you are expanding? Psychological and spiritual energy over these things. You have no control over them. You worry about your child's IQ. You can't do anything about that. Uh, you schoolboys and schoolgirls, you worry about exam results, but your papers are complete. They're in the hands of an examiner in Cardiff, and uh, he's sitting at a table with a pile of scripts, and he's marking, and one day he's going to mark you a paper, and all your worry is not going to affect in any way what he writes and the mark and the grade that he gives you. And our Lord is saying, before you get involved in a problem and before you get distressed about it, let me ask you, can you do anything about it? If you worry about it day in and day out, in the end, what can you do? And we have to learn to say to ourselves, well, I can't do anything about this problem. There's nothing at all that I can do about it. I've made an application to a certain board for a job and they're looking at it now and they're talking amongst themselves of whether they're going to give this job to me. I'm concerned about my health. I talk to the doctor about it and he gives me good advice and assures me that everything is okay. So why am I obsessed with things over which I have no control? It's not going to affect the outcome at all. And then thirdly, there's another possibility. Our Lord is talking about us not just being anxious about trivia and not us being anxious about things we can't control, but being anxious about problems that have not yet materialized, that are simply in our imaginations. Our Lord says, the authorized version is, take no thought for tomorrow. We're obsessed about tomorrow. About what might happen tomorrow. And we imagine all the possibilities of what might occur. We might lose our child. There might be a, a road crash. We read in the paper that... The A470 is the most dangerous road in Wales and we often have to take it from Aberystwyth to, to Llangirig. And we're worried, oh, what if tomorrow I'm in a crash when I'm on that road? What if tomorrow there's a tsunami in Cardigan Bay and a great wave comes up and reaches the National Library of Wales? What happens if a nuclear war is declared tomorrow? What happens if an asteroid strikes Aberystwyth? What happens if a great plague breaks out? I can make the most appalling discoveries about myself, 
about my health, health of body, health of mind, health of my family, health of the congregation, and I can dwell on all the possibilities for evil which lie in tomorrow. I can let my imagination run riot and I can become neurotically depressed about tomorrow. And our Lord says, sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. That's the authorized version which you know and it means each day has enough trouble of its own. Tomorrow will have its troubles. And today has its troubles. So we'll just handle with the grace of God the troubles and testings that God brings into our lives every single day of our lives. Those possibilities are very remote. Those possibilities will probably never materialize. Lightning won't strike your house. And it's time enough to take measures and respond to it when these things do materialize. You know, there are things you can pre-plan for, aren't there? And there are things you can foresee as likely as inevitable. And you can take measures if they are likely or inevitable. But others, others are simply possibilities. Sometimes wild possibilities, extravagant possibilities, mere possibilities... And there are thousands of poor men and women all around us whose present is mortgaged and whose today is a strain and a darkness because they are obsessed with what might happen this winter, what might happen this week. And we have to learn ourselves to keep tomorrow at bay and enjoy the Lord's day and the Lord's house, and the Lord's word, and the Lord's people. Sufficient for today are the trials and the troubles for us to live godly, and self-denying, and thoughtful lives, and to each of us deem other people so much better than ourselves, so much worthier of being here, and, 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 and showing us such love and friendship. That's enough for us. Tomorrow will have its own challenges, and its own problems. Tomorrow the phone may ring, and then we'll think and we'll pray, and we'll be helped to respond to the grief and the pain that a certain message can bring to us. This is a groaning world, and we are programmed to deal by immense, omnipotent grace with the trials and the needs that come into our lives. Fourthly, if we are guilty as believers of falling into neurotic anxiety, it's not only that we are obsessed with trivia or of what we can't control or what has not yet materialized, but we are so often anxious about things about which God tells us he's going to take care of them all. And that's why this directive then is so categorical. And why this uh, prohibition is so unequivocal. 
You remember what Jesus Christ homes in on in, in the Sermon on the Mount, in his analysis of anxiety. He talks about the things that the silly things there to worry about, and he tells them not to. And then what does he home in on? He homes in on our faith, doesn't he? Our faith. O ye of little faith. That category of uh, one of the pilgrims who has to limp along, fearful all the way from the city of destruction to the celestial city. Mr. or Mrs. Little Faith, struggling, fearful, never seeing the chains that stop the lions, reaching the path along which the Christians must go. Jesus says, your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. You're worrying about food and drink and clothes, your life, about survival, all sorts of economic and financial worries you have. You're behaving as though God will not provide for you. You're behaving with little faith, as though God has said, he will not provide all our needs richly in Jesus Christ. He will. He will provide. You're forgetting that God looks after the animate creation. These seagulls with all their cries, in the middle of the night it seems to us they are cooing and mewing and puking outside our windows and God feeds them the birds of the air he takes a muddy field and he clothes it with grass and wild flowers spring up and it becomes our scene of beauty for us because God surrounds us with his loving care he makes a beautiful world how much more if God cares for grass and seagulls Will he care for the people for whom his son came into the world and shed his blood for them and died for them and is going to take them to heaven to be with him and like him forevermore? How often we are guilty of anxiety concerning things which God says, I'll take care of it. You know, you can have an officer in the church and he can say, okay, I'll do that, and you're at peace. You can leave it to him. Because if he says that he'll do it, then you know it's going to be done. Now multiply by infinity. Here is the captain of our salvation. Here is Jesus Christ, our prophet and priest and our king. And he says, I'll take care of all your needs. Now there's a difference between anxiety and uh, laboring to earn one's bread to provide for ourselves and our wives and our children. There's a difference between exercising foresight and knowing there are bills that must be paid, there are orders that must be made, and taking steps and means to do all those things. But the anxious mind does that and worries. It has labored, it has prayed, and yet it cannot sleep 
because it has no confidence in its labors and no confidence in its foresight and no confidence in the promises of God and no confidence in the reality that it's fallen on its knees before God and it said, Lord, now here's my concern about the church. Here's my concern about the family. Here's my concern about this missionary, about these Christians that are suffering so much in Syria these days. Christ says, it is all a matter of your faith. It is all a matter of your trusting your Heavenly Father and what He has said to us and the promises that He has made to us. You've done what God tells you to do. Whatever your hand does, you do it with all your might. You do it to His glory. You presented your body as a living sacrifice to God, and you've done that every day. You say, Lord, here are my hands, here's my mind, here's my affections, here's my strength. I, I give my life to you again to be used by you today. That's, that's the Christian life, the daily life of the believer. He tells us to cast our burdens upon him because he cares for us. I'm bound then not to be distracted from what he has promised. To be preoccupied by the troubles that I've just brought to him. That my faith shows itself, my faith in him, in that I cast my cares upon a loving, sweet, powerful, heavenly father. Because they lie within the orbit now of God's promises and that's what I've got to ask myself uh, when I've got a particular worry and I brought it with me perhaps to the meeting tonight and you feel that this message is particularly for you. You've got this worry. Have you prayed about it? Have you brought it to God? You say, of course I've brought it to God. Does that worry now lie within the orbit of the promises of God that he'll handle it that he'll work it for your good that he'll bring the very best out of it for you that your personal needs he will daily supply that he'll look after your children they are a heritage from the Lord you know, so often we pursue objectives that are at variance with God's plans and promises for us. We, we, we become obsessed with getting a partner to, to marry. And uh, so the first man that asks us, oh, we say yes. And then we have years of regret that lie before us we have terrible anxieties about our children we want our children to be successful well what are your criteria for success we want them to do well what are your criteria for children doing well and we can become neurotic about it there's no promises that our children are going to pass all their exams you know that that our children are going to get high 
high-paying jobs are going to become high flyers. God doesn't promise that for any of our children at all, that they're going to become very intelligent, that they're going to go to Oxford or Cambridge. There's no promise about that at all. Those objectives, if you have those objectives for your children, they are at variance with the promises of God. Because God has very different plans for your children. He wants them in Christ, and he wants them to please Christ in all they do. He wants them to be ornaments in the church and to serve God. He wants them to love their neighbors as themselves. He wants them to love God with all their hearts. He wants them to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He wants whatever their hand does to do it with all of their might to him. He wants them to uh, think of others first. and He wants to deal with others as they, he would have them deal with himself. And those are the objectives that God has. And when we pray for our children to succeed, those are the things we want them to succeed in doing. Well, let me live my life under the promises of God. Let me check my standards by what God has said he wants from me. We have absolutely no justification for worrying about other things. It can't justify our obsessions and our cares. Let's dismiss it. Let's say my life from now on is going to be a non-anxiety zone. I'm not going to be obsessed with trivia. I'm not going to be obsessed about things over which I have no control. I'm not going to be obsessed about things which yet have not materialized in my life. And I'm not going to be obsessed with things concerning which God says he will take care of them. So, that's the negative, that's the law, and now the gospel comes in. Um, What do we do? Um, Well, he tells us we are to present our requests to God. (laughs) In everything, we we present our requests to him. We have a problem, we're not going to worry about it. We take it to the Lord. And that means we, we pray about it. We roll it out before him. We go into his presence. And it's this marvelous picture of us coming to God and we have an offering we're bringing to him. We love him, it's a gift. And uh, the gift that we're bringing, the offering that we're bringing to him is uh, our problem, our concern. Something inclined to make us anxious and uh, destructive. You're going to bring it to him. You're going to make it part of the prayers and petitions that you bring to him. The whole problem, you bring it to God. And you discuss it with him. You discuss it with what you've learned from me, what you've learned from the Bible, what you've learned through your pilgrimage until now about God's dealings with you and how he deals with you. And you, you bring all that knowledge and you, you speak to God at the throne of grace. And you come and then what happens is what 
Isaiah says uh, about our sins. Come, let us reason together, then, God says. He opens the door and he, he sits you down before him. and uh, Okay, tell me that. Tell me what's wrong. Tell me what's wrong. Come, let us reason together. Now, um, an opportunity of speaking to God is uh, a wonderful opportunity for counseling. Because the king of love who sits upon that throne is a wonderful counselor. That's his name. And you go there for advice. And you go to God to discuss your problems. You don't go to God and you tell him what you want him to do with your problems. But you, you spell out your problem, whatever it is, in the light of your experience, in the light of what you know of him, in the light of scripture. And you, you do it in a prayerful way, as a creature to the creator, as a sinner to the redeemer, as a servant to the master, as a soldier to your captain. You do it to him. You show him every aspect of it. You look at it. Like I looked at that baseball this morning. and looked at it and held it and saw the signature and looked at it. And here's a problem then. And you hold it in your hands. And you look at every dimension of it. And you tell him, well, this is my trouble now. And you describe it. Whether it's in your family or whether it's in your business or whether it's in the church. And you let the Lord psychoanalyze your problem. You let him turn it round and round in his presence. And you know, amazing things happen when you do that. When you talk to God about a problem, so often it dissolves. In the light of his presence, in the light of his truth, in the light of his promises... We've taken it to the Lord for general discussion and we've reasoned with him. That is tremendously important. If only before we launched into letting other people know our opinions on this, that and the other or get involved in general debate or committing ourselves to certain lines of conduct. If only before that we went to the Lord and we opened up and we spoke to the Lord about it. This wonderful counselor. So there's prayer and there's petition then. You have particular petitions. You tell the Lord what you, what you long for. And some things you ask for and you know as soon as you said it. That ain't right. You know it's wrong to ask God to do that. You know it's wrong to ask God to do what you are too cowardly or ignorant to do yourself. But you have a petition. You have a longing. Oh, it's for the redemption of those that are precious to you. Their salvation. You're asking for God to bless the word of God that when it's preached it will be spirit and life to those who hear that message. We come to the Lord and we offer all these things to him. 
we've told him what we want. And then the apostle says one more thing before I get to the, the grace. With thanksgiving, he says, you notice that, don't you? With thanksgiving. You know how uh, our Lord teaches us to pray. And uh, he says, uh, when you pray, you say, God, give me this day my daily bread. Well, of course, he doesn't say that. He says, when you pray, say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's how you begin. You don't run straight with your problems to God. You don't bring it up immediately and forget adoration and invocation. You think of the glory of his name. Oh, what a name he has. A name of might. A name of love. A name of holiness and a name of pity and grace. You hallow the name of God. He can't wrong you in anything he permits to come into your life. Or into the lives of those you love. And then after you've worshipped him. And you've brought your thanksgiving to him. Then you say. And, and give me today daily bread. It's laid down as a fundamental principle of prayer. To Go to God with requests, but never omit thanksgiving. That your thanksgiving to God should be commensurate with the mercies you've received from God. And if you can testify, morning by morning, new mercies I see, then morning by morning, new thanksgiving you give to your Heavenly Father. You remember in the past... So many of God's kindnesses to you. And you remember in the present day how much goodness, even in the midst of the tensions and troubles you have, the goodness that you are receiving from a loving God. In many ways it's one of the most difficult lessons in the the Christian life when we're moved by the desolation of illness, illness to children and physical loss and the loss of those we love the most when we're walking through darkness and there's no light at all that we can always find the goodness of God somewhere even if it's the goodness of God in sparing us from hell and giving us access to him and that we can say to him Abba Father and know of his love to us Not just in the past did we have many opportunities to give thanks to God for the way he's led us until now, but now. It's inconceivable to find a Christian who doesn't have many things for which to thank God sincerely. I dare say when our Lord tasted the cup that the Father gave him to drink, when he was forsaken by God. Uh, That was a struggle to remember to give thanks to God that he was his father. But he was upheld for the joy that was set before him. And my friends, that's the counterpoise for present distress. It won't be always like this. We'll be in a world, oh, what beauty there will be and what friends we will have there and 
No more suffering, no more grief. God will wipe the tears from our eyes. What joy and usefulness we will have there in that better place. There is no moment in the Christian life in which thanksgiving is to be omitted. Hitherto has the Lord helped us. His mercies are new every morning. And so here's a a great principle that's being laid down for us in this passage of scripture tonight. Prayer and worry are mutually exclusive. You can't have them both. You have to choose the one or the other. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition, make your requests known to God. You have to choose. You can be resentful. You can be discouraged. You can deceive yourselves, and you can carry a huge burden on your shoulder, or you can Offer yourselves again to God and present your life to God and your future and all that's important to you. And the one excludes the other. If anxiety mounts up and crushes you, trust goes. If trust in an all-loving and all-powerful God rises up, then anxiety goes. And you know our problem is that we take our troubles to the Lord And then we, we go and look for them. We cast our sins into the depths of the sea and we put our scuba diving equipment on and we go and we look for those sins all over again. Here's this whole problem of uh, Christian forgetfulness. How tremendously important it is. How Elijah forgot and Jonah forgot the power of God. And the disciples forgot all the wise things, the loving things that Jesus had told them. David forgot all the goodness of God to him. And it's the same with our past sins. We can drag them up. Our teenage sins and our early married sins and all of them, day after day, those sins that cause others the utmost anguish and pain. And we forget that God has cast them into the depths of the sea. You do not, as a a matter of fundamental Christian practice, Christian logic, you don't keep dragging into your conscience forgiven sins. God has forgiven them. They are buried. They, God determines that he will not remember them again. The problems that I've brought up then, that are troubling me now, I leave them with God. I leave them there. I've put them there at his feet. He has said, well, I look after them. You must trust God to look after your problems. You can't look after them yourself. They're much too big for you. You can't influence their development in any way. Leave them with God. Leave them there. Don't keep dragging them up again. And the next day rehearse them again. Our Lord Jesus tells us about uh, our vain repetition. The heathen do that. They burn a candle. They go back the next day and there's another candle for the same request. You ask God to deal with your trivialities. You ask God to fulfill his promises for you of what he has said he will do. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got you in his hands. And then uh, there's the, the grace. I brought it in uh, 
a sentence or two early, and the grace is here because uh, God says not only will he take care of our, our troubles, but the peace of God. The peace of God will come into our lives. That's what he says in verse 7. We pray, we describe our troubles, we spread them out before him and then. Something wonderful happens. His peace. His peace comes upon us. In no qualifications, Paul doesn't say, if you agonize now for half an hour, if you writhe on the floor for an hour, then the peace of God will be yours. doesn't say that in the word of God. We take these unmanageable, uncontrollable, unpredictable problems, and we take them to the Lord. And he gives us his peace. It's a marvelous thing. God is a God of peace. You know, my refrain, you go into him and there's peace and in and in and in and in. There's peace everywhere in God. In the little kutch under the stairs, there's peace. In the councils that he has with the angels, with Gabriel and all the other angels, there's peace. With Father and Son and Holy Spirit, there's just peace among them, no distractions, no anxieties in God at all. He's not like the Greek gods fighting one another and hating one another. This, there's peace in the profoundest depths. He's the blessed one. He's the completely integrated one. He's the completely fulfilled one. He is the completely unified personality, our God. He's complete. There's complete self-satisfaction and fulfillment. There's peace. God is a God of peace. Our God is a God of peace. Perfect peace. And you know what he does? He gives that peace. Ontologically, that peace, the peace of the being of God. He doesn't improve our peace. He gives us his peace. He places that peace in our hearts and in our minds. He gives it to us. He shares his peace with us. He doesn't become obsessed by our problems and neurotic about our problems. He can cope with the problems of all of you if all of Aberystwyth come to Jesus Christ tonight. He will give them all rest. The teenagers, the widows, the men with health problems, the unemployed, he will give them all rest. He's in control. He's a God completely at peace, completely assured him. So here is the emotional life of the believer. You understand now the, the completeness of it, the demands of the law and the sensible demands of the law and why he tells us that we shouldn't be people that are uh, obsessed with all these things that I've gone through with you. We, we, we bring them to him. Then we bring our concerns to him and he responds with his peace. You know, I've told you the story. It's such a funny story. 
And you've heard it many times, but I like to tell it, so I'll tell it to you again. This man who was a worrier in this town, and how he was always worrying, hopeless, bent over like a question mark with a burden, known for his worry. And one day, a friend saw him, and he was shoulders back, and he was alert, he was walking like a soldier with his medals on along the promenade. Alert, alert, greeting people. Friend came to him and said, Ah, oh, you look well today. I am well, he said. Are you? You're such a worrier. Don't worry anymore. You don't worry anymore, he says. Well, how, how is that? Well, he says, I found a man. And he does my worrying for me. He says, you? He says, how much does he charge? A uh, hundred pounds a day, he says. How can you afford that? Well, that's his worry, he says. You see what the, the story is? The story is of us taking our worries to a God who can care for us and keep us and in place of the fears and the distresses that we have, he gives us his blessed peace. He gives it to us. And we abide in heavenly love. No change our heart shall fear and safe is such abiding. Nothing changes here. God's peace keeps us through our lives. I can't understand why anyone here who has heard tonight of the wonderful thing that God does with us, with our worries and our our concerns and our anxieties, and he takes them from us and gives us peace. How you can leave this place without Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, your great teacher and your friend. You have dealings with him now. You, you go to him tonight and you ask him. You ask him to be your Savior. Our Heavenly Father, bless your word to us. Thank you for all that we've learned tonight again. Oh, how we need these lessons. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to thee in prayer. Teach us as a congregation then to trust thee with all our hearts and not to lean to our own understanding. To know your good and perfect will is being worked out for us now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.